Good afternoon and welcome to Common Ground Radio, an hour-long discussion of local food and organic agriculture here in the state of Maine and beyond, brought to you by the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association and in conjunction with WERU, our community radio station. My name is CJ Walk. I use he, him pronouns, and I am the host for today's episode of Common Ground Radio. Common Ground Radio is a monthly show airing on the second Thursday of each month at 4 p.m. right here on WERU. Previous editions of our show and other great shows can be found in the archive section of the WERU website at www.weru.org, as well as on the WERU app. For today's show, we are listening to a recording of two keynote speakers from the 2021 Common Ground Country Fair. The first address is given by Karen Washington and is titled, Food Justice is More Than Growing Food and Feeding People. Washington is co-owner and farmer at Rise and Root Farm and co-founder of Black Urban Growers. The second address is from Stacy Brenner, titled, Farm Viability Through Land Justice and Farm Worker Rights. Brenner is an organic farmer at Broadturn Farm, a Maine state senator and current Mofka board president. Before we begin, we would like to acknowledge that Mofka is situated on Wabanaki land. We thank the Wabanaki communities for caring for this land sustainably from time immemorial. We want to acknowledge that Mofka is intertwined with the colonialist history of this land. Many of the principles and practices of organic agriculture are rooted in thousands of years of indigenous knowledge from around the world. Here is Karen Washington. Food justice is more than growing food and feeding people. Hi, my name is Karen Washington. I tell people I'm a farmer. I grow food, I feed people, body and mind. I want to thank the Maine Organic Farmer and Gardeners Association for allowing me to be here today. I am so excited. Because of COVID, things have changed our habits of the way we do things, but I'm glad that I'm here. And so I want to talk about a topic that is really dear to me, and most people are hearing it, is food justice. And the title of my talk will be, Food Justice is More Than Growing Food and Feeding People. So just think about it. Do we really think about food in a way that we ask questions about like where our food comes from, who's growing it, with the people who are growing the food treated humanely? And I say that because if you look at what happened back in 1996, when the World Food Summit defined food security as existing when all people at all times have access to sufficient, safe, nutritious food to maintain a healthy and active lifestyle. Now, you look at that sort of phrase, you would say, you know, that's exactly true. However, there are people in poor urban and rural communities that are often told if they want food security, all they have to do is grow some vegetables, give up soda or exercise, as if by magic, by doing these things, is going to change their outlook without really looking at the structural determinants that reinforce racism in today's society. So let me tell you a little bit about me because I never in my wildest dreams would thought that I would be a farmer. You see, I grew up in New York City, concrete jungle. They call it the Big Apple, surrounded by so many tall buildings. My relationship to a farm was a park, was Central Park. My relationship to animals is what I saw either in a zoo or, or in a circus. 
even in school, we never talked about agriculture except a nursery rhyme like Old MacDonald. To be honest with you, I never the fact that my mom was a good cook, was really, really good. But my relationship to food and other things is that it came from a grocery store or a department store. Now that I look back, I say to myself how truly I was truly lost by having that disconnect to land and to food. And then thinking about becoming a farmer, what, me as an African-American? I was taught growing up that farming for Black folks was slavery. And so why would I want to go into a profession that was demeaning? So I took the path of least resistance and went through, through education. I became a healthcare professional. However, there must have been something in the cards, something along the line that sort of drifted me to this profession in terms of farming. And so I really didn't get the, the sort of farming bug until I moved to the Bronx back in 1985. I had a big backyard and it's three things that I could have done to that backyard. Either put a cement path down on it, put a lawn or grow food. And I decided to grow food. And I always talk because I wanted to grow. First, I wanted to grow collard greens. Had to grow collard greens because that's been a staple for a lot of African-American families. Next thing I wanted to grow was an eggplant because what, an eggplant? That sounds sort of funky to see an eggplant grow. And the next was a tomato. Now, granted, tomatoes, I hated tomatoes. They came three in a carton, cellophane carton, and they tasted like cardboard. So I said, let me give it a try. And so I put the seeds in the ground, nourished the plant, and voila, wait, a tomato grows on a vine. Remember, for me, everything came from a grocery store. And the fact that it was red, number two, blew my mind. And then when I bit into that tomato and I tasted, ooh, the juices was flowing. I was so hooked on growing everything from eggplants, from citrus, like bananas, but then I quickly knew living in New York City, I couldn't do that. But I never lost that passion about growing food. Fast forward, as I was living in my new house, across the street was an empty lot. Can you believe it? New York City at one time had 15,000 vacant lots, mostly in low-income neighborhoods and neighborhoods of color. Those that could leave, they call it white flight. Those that were able to, to stay, turn these empty lots into, voila, community gardens and urban farms. And you would think that the city would appreciate something like that. Look at this. You know, when we first started doing this, it wasn't about food per se. It was about bringing communities together. It was about survival. It was about really turning things that were blight into something that was hopeful. Back in the early 70s, it was about survival. And you would think that the city would appreciate the fact that this was sweat equity. They didn't have to pay for the services of maintaining these beautiful gardens and urban farms. But in 1998, in the middle of the night, the city tried to auction off 100 community gardens. Can you believe that? People who were taking care of these spaces 
the city turned its back on the people and decided they wanted to auction off a hundred community gardens. And we were told, wait a second, you can't fight City Hall, but here we are on the steps of City Hall, community gardens, gardeners throughout the city coming together and protesting and demand saving those community gardens. And because we were protesting and started to understand that growing food in any municipality has political consequences, we got the air of the governor at that time who said what the mayor did was wrong, stopped the injunction, and we were able to save those 100 community gardens. However, it's something to think about as we go further because land, again, in a municipality has political consequences. And now at the forefront, there has to be a balance between green space and affordable housing. And so as I moved forward, I started to really become like a green thumb person, understanding that I could grow food. And I started learning from a lot of my elders. I read books. I did a lot, a lot of reading. And I realized while I was in that garden, I was focusing on growing food. There was something that was missing because I started to hear some of the social issues that were coming up in the community garden. I started to hear social issues around um, lack of affordable housing, um, health issues such as diet-related diseases, type 2 diabetes, obesity, hypertension, um, air quality, the fact that so many people were suffering from asthma, and also in terms of economics because a lot of people were out of work. And so I realized that food could not stand alone, but that it was in, 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 it related to so many of these social issues that I started to question the food system. And I started to question the food system by saying in the greatest country in the world where we grow enough food and we waste enough food, why isn't that food getting down to the people that need it the most? And many of you would agree and I would agree too at one time, you know, that the food system is broken and needed to be fixed until I realized that the struggle for good food and clean water brings to the surface the social economic problems that we have. And it reinforces a food system that is controlled by a handful of people. Food alone has no power, but now has become a commodity and is being used as a tool for people to have power over others. You know, it is estimated by 2050, 2050, that we will have an additional 2 billion more people on this planet. That means we're going from 7.8 to 9 billion more people on this planet. And most of the people will end up in urban areas. And so we have to think about, does today's industrialization run parallel to the advancements of technology, the mass industrial production of food? If so, who does it benefit? Can we say that the land of milk and honey is now the land of greed and money? And I say that because if you look at our food system, we've gone from diversity to monocropping based on single crops, say for instance, corn. The fact that we have farm subsidies. Now back in the early 1930s, farm subsidies were supposed to help farmers get through the season. 
but now they become a cash cow. And in some cases, farmers are paid not even to grow crops. We've gone from a local market to a global market because of trade agreements, home cooking, where we used to you come together as family and friends and share meals to fast food eating and from seasonality to growing all year round and eating food all year round. How about the fact that a lot of us that live in the Northeast are eating cherries and watermelon in December? Something to think about. Also, can we actually say that we're much better off because we have a food system that is more efficient and specialized or more mechanized due to technology? Which brings me to talk about our food system. The American diet, folks, was once plant-based, based on grains and fruits and vegetables. Now it's animal-based. And as a result, our caloric intake has increased from 2,000 calories per capita to over 3,800 calories per capita. This is insane and this is not healthy. We have a subsidized charity-based food systems byproduct of industrial ag ends up where? We know where it ends up. It ends up in poor neighborhoods with no nutritional value. Folks, this is a wake-up call. This is a wake-up call for us to challenge the food system. Even our farming habits have changed as we become more analytical, data-driven, and more local. And consumers want more from us. They want food that is fresh. They want food that is local. They want food that is affordable and healthy. And farmers want to grow more efficiently. However, our food system seems to have been focusing more on profits than on people and less on our environment. So once again, if you look at our food system, when they say it's broken, does it need to be fixed? I beg to differ. I say the food system does not need to be fixed. It needs to change. And that change comes with shifting of power. Power that must go back into the hands of community. For too long, folks, we have been silent and complacent. We have given up our power to lobbyists, the government, big ag. But we must think about shifting that power. But where does that power dynamic show up? Well, it shows up in our society in terms of hunger when we can't have it. It shows up as poverty when we're too poor to afford it. It shows up in dye-related diseases when it's killing us. It shows up as organic food when organic food becomes elitist. And it shows up with big ag when we have a handful of companies controlling our food system. So for me, the answer lies in community. Understanding the power that we have as people in community, which means changing how we view ourselves. I, for one, live in a low-income neighborhood. I live in the Bronx. And for years, people have been telling me about my community in terms of deficits and problems. And I had to change the lens on how I looked at my community as being resilient because we have a community, a community has no resources. And I had to look at my community in terms of strength, resilience, and power. And we need to do that. 
when we think about our communities, especially communities that are marginalized, we need to think of them in terms of what they want instead of what they need. Asking a community what they want comes from a position of power. Asking us what we need comes from a position of deficits. And so if we look at community, I'm talking about social capital and communal wealth. What does it look like when I talk about social capital and communal wealth? It means that everybody in the community has value, has the power to make change. However, we let things come in the way to sort of separate us. We have to realize by working together, we can change the system for the better. Another thing when it comes to language that's being used, you've heard the term food deserts. And recently I've heard the term, it's no longer food deserts, it's food mirage. You know, it, it, it's, it, it, it's all these food swamps, there's all these sort of names. And I'm saying to myself, wait a second, I don't live in a desert and I don't live in a swamp and it's not a mirage. Again, these are outside terms that have been used labeling people who have limited access to food or a grocery store. So I tend to coin the term food apartheid. And I came up with that term because when you talk about food deserts, again, an outside term is usually used for, for data purposes. It really doesn't get at the heart of what the problem is. And the problem is hunger and poverty. And it's based on three things. It's based on race, the color of your skin. It's based on how much money you have, income inequality. And it's based on where you live, demographics. And I say the word food apartheid because I want people to concentrate on those factors and for us to start having a hard conversation in this country. Why is it that there are people who have more and there are people who have less? And then how in the greatest country in the world can we fix this problem of inequality when it comes to our food source? Another term that is widely used in the really part of the title of my talk is food justice. And I tell people it doesn't exist. And people say, wait a second, what do you mean it doesn't exist? No, it doesn't exist. It does, I say that because it's been co-opted. People have used food justice without even understanding the true meaning, they pair their RP, their programs, and they make it feel like they, they sound good around food justice. But here's a definition that I like to use. It says food justice represents a transformation of the current food system, including but not limited, the disparities and inequities. And I like this sort of definition because I take the word transformation. And by using the word transformation, I say food justice is not a passive movement. Food justice is an active movement. That means in order for you to be doing the work of food justice, you have to be actively working on transforming the food system. And that means working on the social injustices that we normally see in our food system. So what are some of the social justice that we commonly see? Well, again, persistence in terms of race, gender, class, inequalities, 
the lack of opportunities to be self-sufficient and self-reliant. What does that mean? It means getting people within their communities to be independent, to have a seat at the table, their voices to be heard, instead of always in that sense of needing help and wanting help. Third, land loss due to theft, racism, that G word, gentrification, economics. We have an inequality when it comes to wealth in this country. Whites make at least 11% more than Black and Latinx people. You are tuned in to Common Ground Radio, and we are listening to keynote speakers from the 2021 Common Ground Country Fair. Currently speaking is Karen Washington of Rise and Root Farm and Black Urban Growers. After this address, we will hear the keynote address from Stacy Brenner of Broad Turn Farm. Next, the lack of understanding the historical content of trauma. And this is something maybe I'll talk about later. Again, understanding for so long, people have been oppressed. They have felt the um, scars of oppression, of white supremacy. And this is something that travels along from generation to generation, but yet we don't talk about healing trauma and the effects trauma have on our people. And the last we'll talk about, of course, is shifting power. Another phrase that we hear too often is food sovereignty. So people go from, oh, I know about food justice, and then they go into food sovereignty again, a term that has been co-opted because food sovereignty came from the peasants of the global lower south. And so this term is used by La Via Campesina and it says, this is what they are saying, food sovereignty is the right of peoples and governments to choose the way food is produced and consumed in order to respect our livelihoods as well as the policies that support this choice. So what does that mean? Well, in, in essence, it's less dependency on capital-intensive capital inputs that extract, right? And greater, intent, greater attention to the social and environmental principles that build communal wealth. Its principle is based on equity in the decision-making process, the decision-making process that puts power back into the hands of the community thus advocating greater control over production, consumption against those for who for so long have been having power over people who have been marginalized. Let's talk about power for a moment because people with power are at the heart of the problem. And I say that because in order for the food system to change, it has to change several ways. Number one, people with power have to give it up. Ooh, you know that's hard to do because power is like a drug. People do not want to give up power, but either have to give it up or they have to share it. Or the final thing is that it's going to be taken away from you. And so we have to make sure that in order for us to understand the true meaning of power, we have to understand that as long as we have a food system that embraces a power dynamic society of power over others, 
it will remain stagnant and resistant to change. A food system that is dominated by white privilege and wealth with a historical frame of power over others, has, they have to acknowledge that power and eventually give it up. Think about it, giving up power, putting it back into the hands of community, the people who want to grow their own food and want to control their destiny. From small, from small farmers and growers to food and farm workers, a healthy food system is not just about growing food, but making sure that everybody along the food chain is treated fairly and humanely. And this was really brought to the forefront during COVID because food now has become a commodity based on profits and not on people. In order for the food system to change is giving up that power. So what must we do? Our food system on one hand is complex. On the other hand, it's simple. There are dots along the way that we must follow. For the person that puts that seed in the ground to the food that's on your plate. Together, we must take back our food system. And everyone plays a role in that decision-making. So what are people doing to change the food system? What are they doing when it comes to the realities of what food justice is all about? Understanding once again that the power relies in the hands of the people of community. Well, many of them are reclaiming land and developing community gardens and urban farms and small farms, working on affordable housing, working to make sure that everyone has clean water and access to healthy food. They're growing their own food that is culturally appropriate because they can't find it at a local grocery store. They're growing food that they know is affordable and not elitist. They're developing educational curriculum that talks about how this country was built. As an African-American, I've always felt an outside about how this country was built because for so long, it's been labeled that our participation as African-American came through slavery. When the reality is we were brought here, not because we were dumb, we were brought here because of our knowledge of agriculture, the seeds in our hair. We planted the seeds for the foundation of this country along with indigenous people, but yet that's not being taught within the realms of agriculture education. People are saving seeds in defiance of companies. Just think about it. So we have a handful of companies who are putting a patent on seeds that prevent us from saving seeds. Now, we all know that seeds are like part of our DNA, and we've allowed a handful of companies to own seeds? No. So there are people who are defying that, and they're saving seeds. They're growing herbs for medicinal purposes and healing. They're forming cooperatives, coalitions, marching in the streets, demanding equity demanding dismantling racism, demanding a fair shot as human beings 
as part of this great country. I tell people, give us three things. Give us opportunity, give us capital, and give us support. And people who you have deemed powerless becomes powerful. They're taking back their narrative of their history. They're speaking up against injustice. Again, a huge problem that we have, the complacency and silence, especially with people with power and privilege that don't speak up when they see injustice. You must speak up when you see injustice. Starting on farmers markets, people are doing farmers markets and CSAs and farm shares. You know, at the height of this pandemic, people got together and start feeding their communities because they saw for the first time the effects of the lack of having access to food was doing in terms of fighting this virus. People now are supporting local farmers and small farmers because these are the people who are at the heart of the food system. That's that relationship that you can have between your community and your local farmer is so, so important. Having conferences, having conferences that are inclusive and diverse. Because as farmers, if our fruits and vegetables have different colors and they're diverse, then our conferences and how we do our workshops have to be inclusive and has to be diverse. And again, forming local economies around wealth building and investment, conversations we normally don't have. So what is it that you can all do? Because I like to leave, you know, after I speak with people, a homework assignment and your marching orders. So these are the things that you can do. Together we can all advocate for a better food system by supporting the rights of farm workers and restaurant workers and grocery people on the front line because all of a sudden COVID made us realize how they are essential workers. We need to support working on access to land and affordable housing because this is gonna be a big problem in urban areas as the population grows and there's a need for more land. I go across the country speaking to urban planners and I say, you can do both. You can grow, sorry, you can build a big building, but also you can incorporate a rooftop garden or a garden within that development. You can have both. Next, be open to the idea of land reparations. I know people hear that and they're afraid when you talk about land reparations, what do you mean? You know, you're taking my land. No, we need to have an open conversation. Why it's important that land is put back into the hands of people who have had their land stolen, especially our indigenous population and, and, and enslaved uh, people. So we need to have that conversation about land and reparation and also about land itself because we shouldn't think about owning land. I'd rather think of it as we're stewards of the land I mean, how, because how can you uh, really, how can you really own land when your lifespan is so short? So for me, it's not about owning land because once I'm gone, I don't, I don't own the land anymore. So let's sort of reframe it in terms of being stewards of the land. And when you're stewards of the land, you can take care of the land and you can pass that land along to the next generation. Something to think about. Again, demand for healthy food and clean water, 
Both are human rights, but yet we seem to separate one from the other. Again, the right to save seas and the right to have food label. I mean, that's a no brainer. I want to be able to look at an item and be able to read a label and able to pronounce the ingredients so I know what I'm putting in my body. Again, these are things that we need to do. Also, speak up against hazardous working conditions at major food facilities and businesses. We all need to be whistleblowers. When we see injustice, we must speak up. Next, making sure our elected officials are accountable for so long through silence and complacency. We have, had, we have given up our power to elected officials. No, the power has to come back into our hands because we put those elected officials into office. So we have to make sure that they're doing the work that we put them in, we voted them to do. So we have to make sure they're accountable. I like this one, break bread and have a meal with someone you don't know. And I think we've gone away from meal sharing and we've become used to being in our own silos and our own groups. And we have to, if we're gonna move and change this food system, then we have to be able to reach out into other communities and see how they live and what they want, not what they need, what they want. And then together we can try to offset some of the problems that we have, but we can't if we live in silos and we live alone. Strive for a community that cherishes diversity and inclusion as assets and not the NIMBY sort of not in my neighborhood where you don't want people who look don't look like you to come into your As farmers and gardeners, we cherish diversity in the plants that we grow and the colors of the, of the food that we grow. We need to do the same thing as the way we treat one another. And lastly for me, which is really, really important is developing youth leadership. I, Say I'm an, I'm an elder now. And so what I'm trying to do now is to help the next generation of youth leadership to come to the forefront. So that means stepping back and allowing youth to have a space and have a voice and have a voice at the table. And I say that because it's not about them just sitting there and just listening. It's about them having the power to make change as well. So finally, we must all raise our shovels and our voices together. You know, COVID has really impacted a lot of things. The way we think things have changed, how we're looking at our community, looking at our food system, how we're looking, how we treat one another. We must be able to reach across aisles and across countries because this food movement is not a local movement. It's a global movement. And with climate change, and, and food problems, it's impacting everybody across the world. So it's not only reaching out within our local community, but think about the problem that we have globally. Our food system, again, on one hand is complex. On the other hand, is simple. There are dots along the way that we must come together to make sure that we have a food system that is fair, just, and equitable for all. So I'm gonna leave you with this. This is my saying. To grow your own food gives you power. You know who and why you grew it. You grew it for yourself. 
your family and your community. My name is Karen Washington. I tell people I'm a farmer. I grow food, I feed people, body and mind. Thank you so much for having me. Let's bring our shovels together. Let's make sure that we change the food system so that food and water are human rights. Thank you so much. You are tuned in to Common Ground Radio, and we are listening to keynote speakers from the 2021 Common Ground Country Fair. The address we just heard was Karen Washington of Rise and Root Farm and Black Urban Growers. Now we will hear from Maine State Senator Stacy Brenner of Broad Turn Farm. Hello, everyone. I'm humbled and honored to be part of MOFCA's Board of Directors during this time of great celebration and accomplishment. It's our 50th anniversary and reaching this milestone is nothing short of fantastic. This success is related to the convergence of kindred spirits, devoted farmers, back to the landers and revolutionaries. We've all worked season over season to produce more agricultural products organically in the state of Maine, in backyards and hillsides, hoop houses and fertile fields, community gardens and cooperatively owned farms. Education, apprenticeships, business development, consumer protection, and a belief in a mission to grow organic has increased our membership and programming, staff and organic acreage. But it started with a vision and a collection of people looking for an intentional way to live, grow food, and come together in community. In the early 2000s, the word was out about Mafka, and it was a strong draw for me. My husband, John, and I moved from West Philadelphia to Maine in the spring of 2002 to be part of the Journey Person program. This was the year of its inception, and we owe a great debt of gratitude to the insightful board 20 years ago who saw value in supporting new farmers. Reeling from the upheaval and tragedy of 9-11 and the inception of the war in Afghanistan, John and I probably asked Jeeves or used Yahoo to search farmer training programs. I had studied plant sciences and had a bachelor's in agriculture. I was a single mom and I was just finishing graduate school, studying to be a nurse midwife at the University of Pennsylvania. I've been living in Lancaster County during the fall of 2001, attending home births of Amish and older Mennonite families. Those babies always came at night and my teacher had two rates for service, the first baby and then all the rest. I was drawn to their agrarian way of life, the domesticity of the families of these birthing moms called to me. John and I were falling in love and writing letters to one another. And I tried to put all this in words into a vision. And luckily for us, this was a life we were both drawn to and a direction we both saw for ourselves together. We said goodbye to our suburban childhoods much to our parents' chagrin, and we drove an old Subaru and a U-Haul filled with domestic ephemera and houseplants to Maine in time to start the spring season farming. Back in 2002, when we showed up for our interview for the Journey Person program at the fairgrounds with Russell Libby and Heather Spaulding, they took our money. You had to pay to participate in the Journey Person program in the early years. Back then, Mavka had yet to find donors, foundations, and grants to support new farmer programming. We were looking for a vegetable CSA to farm with, and they offered us a number of options for farms to consider, and we ultimately landed in Cumberland at Sunrise Acres Farm. Russell's informed guidance and capacity for vision was laced with warmth 
and an infectious hope. Over the years, he continued to offer us kind words of encouragement and recognition, and this buoyed our sense of capacity to keep going in a hard season, persevere through an unprofitable year, and manifest a vision. Empathic is the word that comes to mind when I think of Russell. He sent some very well-timed, handwritten notes to us in those early years that arrived at just the right moment. In farming, success is often measured by the ability to farm another season. It can be a constant process of being humbled. The arrival of a small note of recognition from Russell Libby felt like a belief in our ability to do something hard, to build something new, to learn how to farm. It meant the world to us in those moments. And we realized we'd found our farming support group. We were being held, encouraged, and elevated by Mafka. We stayed in Cumberland at Sunrise Acres for two seasons. And since leaving Sunrise Acres, we've started two farm businesses on different pieces of land. But for the last 15 years, we've grown an assortment of crops in Scarborough at Broadturn Farm. Initially, our business was centered on a produce CSA, but it's evolved to the point where cut flowers are now our main focus. We provide what we like to call farm-driven floral design, which affectionately means we make all kinds of things using the farmed and foraged materials here on our land. We run a summer camp, we host events, but we have a fondness for growing seed garlic. Broadturn Farm exists on land that was once occupied and contested by the Pequawket people of the Abenaki Nation. Understanding the past and how it relates to the place we currently live and work is at once a political and spiritual practice. Acknowledgement of historical injustice must live side by side with gratitude for our privilege. This inherent dissonance pushes us to learn more, challenge our understanding, and engage with openness and non-judgment. The current landowner here is the Scarborough Land Trust. Our business, Broadturn Farm Incorporated, Incorporated, holds a unique 99-year lease for use of this land. It's our hope that this model of land tenureship, where the business and the access to the land versus the value of the land and its potential for current and future development is what gets elevated. Divorcing ourselves from the romantic notion of land ownership and instead embracing land stewardship and strong business development is how John and I would like to see farmland access evolve. So said another way, I wanna see farm business be what we value and retire on as farmers, not the sale of our land. Like organic farming in the early years, this idea, it makes people nervous. Our leasehold and mindset has emerged at the speed of trust, which is to say that it took us 15 seasons to put together. Our mentors when we started a farming, our farming career were Don and Bruce of Meadowood Farm in Yarmouth. Don is part of the Beckwith clan dating back generations in Maine. His loving relationship with Bruce was a fact which excluded him from mainstream culture at the time. He was not invited into the farming business of his siblings, but this break also encouraged an alternative mindset which put him on the path to adopt organic farming practices a difference which set him and Bruce on a road to success. It looked like success to us. Rich, dark soil, healthy crops, an amazing following at the Portland Farmer's Market, the OG lettuce guys, 
Mafka founders. Heather Spaulding has remained a constant when we think of Mafka. She's aptly held so many roles within the organization and developed the strategic plan to realize the vision. And now as we round out into 50 years, it is exciting that the strategic plan of the current board includes a more robust policy focus led by Heather. The intersection of policy at the state and federal level with the work of MOFCA cannot be understated. Prioritizing policy and making our collective voice heard in Augusta and Washington will have lasting impact on farmers and consumers going forward. My first and keenest awareness of how policy affects farmers and small businesses was at the beginning of the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare as many of you know it. The ACA really changed our farm's trajectory. I had been working off the farm as a nurse midwife and while I loved the work, I was ready to put all my energy into our business. The off-farm career had offered money to start our farm business, money to make student loan payments and importantly, health insurance. The loans could be put into forbearance and we're pretty good at living on next to nothing financially. But having spent a number, a number of years in healthcare, I was anxious about foregoing coverage and the ACA offered a solution for small business owners. The ACA also allowed us to retain adult employees who shared our farming dream and they could now acquire appropriately priced health insurance after they turned 26 on the healthcare marketplace. While clunky and imperfect, it was better than nothing. And I can say with pride that four of this season's employees have been with the farm for an average of eight seasons as a result of being able to access health coverage. For a business, employer retention is crucial for growth, expansion, and efficiency. In this last year, as a newly elected state senator, representing all of the town of Gorham and most of the towns of Scarborough and Buxton, my awareness of the role that MAFCA and its large membership can play in policymaking was awakened. There are multiple organic farmers now serving as elected officials in the state legislature. This past session, we achieved a number of wins. I introduced and we successfully passed a healthy soils bill with overwhelming bipartisan support. This bill will charge the main department of agriculture to steward programming for farmers around education and incentives to use farming practices that build and maintain organic matter and soil structure, ensuring climate smart farming practices will be encouraged. We also passed laws banning neonicotinoids in residential use and chlorpyrifos in educational settings. The neonics bill is the strongest in the nation and sets an example for other states. We also passed a suite of bills to address the scourge of PFAS, a class of forever chemicals that contaminates drinking water, farm soils, and the environment. These bills together work to protect human and environmental health to the perceived detriment of the chemical industry. And we funded the Land for Maine's Future program to the tune of $40 million, not with a bond package, but in the budget package. We were not successful passing a ban on aerial spraying of glyphosate in our woodlands or a farm worker rights bill, but these topics remain conversation pieces. And what we know on the legislative level is that all major change takes a few rounds before taking hold. In the 50 years since MAFCA's inception, we've together collectively shown the world that organic farming is not only feasible, but profitable and sought after in the marketplace. We've shown the world we can pass legislation at the state level to keep our soils and waters safer. 
we need to show the world that taking care of the planet isn't enough. We need to turn our attention to taking care of people. So with all that said, I wanna to turn to my personal goals for agriculture in Maine for the foreseeable future. I'm not alone in sharing these goals and I urge you all to join me to see a possible way to realize our next elevated vision for a better world. I think of organic farmers as the original social entrepreneurs considering planet, profit and people in balance. Mofka farmers have plowed our way forward to show that it's possible to raise crops, livestock, milk, fiber and flowers organically. We've achieved a certain legitimacy in the marketplace with our trusted brand. And we've illustrated that organic farming has a real and important place in the story of climate smart agriculture moving forward. As an organization and a community, we battle with addressing food insecurity, food access, food deserts, and the ability for our products to be procured using SNAP and WIC benefits at the farmer's market and at our farm stands. And we have so much more to do on these fronts. But our story has yet to include the prosperity for all the people involved. And we don't wanna leave anyone behind. I believe it's time for us to turn our attention towards all of the workers, the human talent that keeps our cows milked, our fields cultivated, our produce picked and packed, the farm crews who bring in our crops, who were deemed essential during the start of the pandemic, and who in our country are disproportionately people of color and who often do not identify English as their first language. Equal protection under the law is a cornerstone of our system. We teach it to our children, we invoke it in our speeches. The law treats farm workers as less than. It treats them as inferior. It treats them as unworthy. It's no accident. It was put into our laws by design. It's an artifact of our troubled history. It is systemic racism. The New Deal of the 1930s marked an important step forward for millions of American workers, but not for most communities of color. The Fair Labor Standards Act and the National Labor Relations Act, both parts of the New Deal, excluded farm workers and domestic workers. The path intentionally chosen by the leaders at the time as a way to hold the Southern Caucus together and get them to vote in favor of the two bills. The workers in these two groups, farm workers and domestic workers, were disproportionately people of color and still are. This might've been who we were a century ago, but we need to change, we must change, and we can do better. We must tell our farm workers that we do value them as an essential and equal part of our workforce. Since 1930, only 12 states in the District of Columbia have moved to include agricultural workers under the minimum wage laws, and only seven states in the District of Columbia require overtime for these workers. Most recently this summer, Colorado passed a comprehensive farm worker rights bill. In Maine, there's currently no minimum wage or overtime for agricultural workers. We failed twice to pass this legislation at the state level here in Maine. Opponents of the idea state with near full consensus that they're supportive of a minimum wage requirement, but they claim that overtime will put them out of business or dramatically increase the cost of their products in the marketplace. Some point to their H-2A visa workers who arrive from other countries specifically to work on farms for the season, who wanna work as many hours as possible while they're here. And I would argue, fine, but let them get paid fairly for their work, which I also think is something that they'd like. 
These same opponents claim Americans don't want to work hard. And I would argue they do want to work hard, but they want to be compensated fairly. They want to be paid overtime. Otherwise, they're just going to choose another profession. I believe we need legislation that will define agricultural workers as employees under the wage and hour laws of the state of Maine. In other words, right now, these essential workers are not considered employees under the Maine law. When Mafka's revolutionary founders told the world they were gonna transform commercial farming using organic methods, throw out the arsenal of chemicals and pesticides, they were laughed at, ridiculed, not taken seriously. But over time, season after season, we've shown our capacity to be a central player in the marketplace. It's possible to run a farm in Maine organically and be profitable. Research, sales reports, consumer demand, and our status as the oldest and largest organic farming organization in the country confirms, to borrow a line from Glennon Doyle, we can do hard things. We have to decide if we want to continue to tell ourselves comfortable lies or accept uncomfortable truths and work hard to rethink labor in agriculture. Farm workers need a farming organization to champion their worth and essentiality. I challenge us as a community to show up for them. I challenge our consumers to support this cause, even if it means their heirloom tomato may cost a few cents more. The time for exploitation of human talent on farms needs to end. It's time for the farming community to catch up to the fair and equitable labor practices for all other labor groups in the state of Maine. Cesar Chavez, who spent his life working with farm workers, said, we cannot seek achievement for ourselves and forget about progress and prosperity for our community. Our ambitions must be broad enough to include the aspirations and needs of others for their sakes and for our own. We've built a trusted brand in the marketplace. When you see the Mafka certified organic label, you know that soil is foundational to our work as farmers and gardeners. I want the next layer of our trusted brand to include consumers' awareness of our support for fair treatment of farm workers. As I said at the start, it's an honor to be board president in the 50th year of Mafka. I'm humbled and delighted to serve the membership. I'm so proud of what my husband and I have accomplished as farmers with the help and support of Mafka's programming over the years. And I'm in the good company of a community of farmer colleagues who I call friends and market competitors and champions for a movement that's now 50 years old in Maine. We're the oldest and largest organic farming organization in the country. And I'm so thankful and awestruck by those who've come before me Thank you for your vision. Thank you for saying yes to the Journey Person program around the board table 25 years ago. I'm not sure I would have ended up spending my life in Maine had it not been for the Journey Person program. I'm hopeful that together we'll be celebrating the 75th anniversary of Mafka 25 years from now in person and someone else will be thanking us for moving forward with a vision for fair labor standards. At the 75th anniversary, I hope our state's farm business ownership picture will include more farmers of color and our farm workers will be recognized in statute in the state of Maine as employees, offered the same types of protections as employees in other professions, including workers' comp, overtime, and a minimum wage. At the 75th anniversary, 
I aspire for a total acreage of certified organic farmland in the state to increase. And I hope that our farming practices in their basic cleverness will be a routine part of how we sequester carbon, mitigate climate change and feed New England. I welcome you all to visit me anytime at Broadturn Farm. Write notes and emails, call anytime. Let me know your policy ideas, your dreams for the future and your stories of the past. I wish Mafka a very happy 50th anniversary and I send gratitude to all of you who've come before and those who will come after to carry the vision forward in solidarity and always in peace. Thank you. We have come to the end of the show and I'd like to thank our listeners for tuning in to Common Ground Radio. We heard keynote addresses from the 2021 Common Ground Country Fair given by Karen Washington and Stacy Brenner. I'm CJ Walk, your host for today's show. Common Ground Radio is brought to you by the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association in conjunction with WERU, which can be heard at 4 p.m. on the second Thursday of every month, right here and only here on your community radio station, WERU 89.9 FM and WERU.org. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for more great programming.